So then I got on vent, the wire system. It's the vent system. You can talk to anybody on your tier. Oh, that's called the wire when yeah, you talk yeah. through the vents. So you go on a vent and you know, hear people fight all the time with a vent and they're fighting outside. It's like a Twitter. It's like Twitter. It's, it's, it's Twitter. It's prison Twitter. <laughs> it's prison Twitter. So I, I got on the, on the wire on a vent and I asked people from the Bay, like, what should I do? I want. I got to be in this talent show. I ain't got no talent. And everybody unanimously was like, do comedy, bro. So I, I was going to do comedy. The decision was made. So the day the talent show was coming, I got my jeans out. I put them under the bed to get the crease on them. Had all my clothes ready. Wow. <laughs> That's how we crease our jeans. We uh -huh. ironed them by putting them under the bed and sleeping on it. Got all dressed up. My brand new trade shirt, my trade boots. I was ready to go. And they said, Williams, you ain't coming out like that. They said, take all that off. You're going to be in your drawers. So I had to come out my boxers. I came my boxers and they had the leg irons and hand shackles in their hands. I was like, fuck. <laughs> said, you got to wear these too. You can't be around other inmates. So I had leg irons, hand shackles, which is, you know, around your waist, um, cuffs on your hands, uh -huh. and, and a chain between your feet. So I had to do the talent show in my drawers in hand shackles and leg irons. And I won. I won the talent show. And then I became a comedian. Hot breath. Howdy do, hot breath of verse. This is your favorite host, comedian Joel Byers. And you know what time it is. Hot breath. <sighs> your favorite time of the week, if you will. And this episode coming up is one of my favorites to date, I have to say. And I've been saying that a lot, but every interview just keeps getting better and better. And I keep learning more and more, and I hope you are learning as much as I am in listening to these, which is why I do these. So if you do enjoy it, please just tell a friend, family member, coworker, whatever. All I got to say before we hop in, I did not get to a booze story. Oh, hot brethren and sister, and I am so sorry, but I think my guest will certainly make up for that with plenty of other stories and there are stories of bombing on television in this interview. So I think that makes up for the fact of me not just directly asking for a story of getting booed. You know, I ask the boo stories just to show the perspective of the highs and lows of comedy. And I like to ask people about their success, but we're not anywhere without our failures. Those are the best teachers. So that is why I like to ask those as well. I do have a fun Little tidbit in the outro I'll share with you, but I don't want to take up any more of your hot, precious time here in the intro. So let's get into it, hot brethren and sister. And this is so exciting. Drum roll, please. No, I won't do that and mess up the audio. Here we go. There's only one thing left to do, and that is inhale a hot breath. With Nima, you have it. You have it in the archives. William, it is in the Nima archives. <laughs> There's some water for you, my right, man. Now let's have more fun. Yeah, yeah. That's, this is hot. Yeah, yeah. This is hot breath water. This is a Fontis. This is our sponsor, Fontis. Fontis, hot breath water. They're a, a local spring water from the Blue Ridge Mountains of Georgia. That is beautiful. So they do custom labels and they do like the big office water and all that. Mm -hmm. Like, but that's a. Uh, that's the that's that's the game right there, man. That's for game. you. That's the only gift I can give you right now. And you know what? Sorry. This podcast and your presence is a gift as well. Hey, so. this is this is a long time coming. And yeah, man. A big reason I wanted to have you on there, besides just not just being a fan, of course, but also because you have these crazy stories, like yeah. you like you just said. It like your your life is really <laughs> You know, it's so crazy. It's like a movie. I know it's on paper my life has been insane, but you know, I've always 
kind of just been somebody that could let it ride off him like water on a duck's back. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my early childhood, I lived in a third world country, you know. And in it, Nepal. In Nepal. Yeah. And I was raised very Buddhist. And, you know, my belief system is one of the reasons I was able to get cheated on because we don't have attachments. I can't, I'm not allowed to be jealous. Matter of fact, my belief mm. system, it's, it's against my religion to be famous. Really? I mean, in essence, to be a true Buddhist, but I don't adhere to that completely. Mm-hmm. But we don't seek um, fame or recognition, very remain humble constantly. You know, but people don't really understand what, a Buddha, what, what Buddha is. Buddha was a prince, Prince Siddhartha. And he spent eight, 28 years of his life in isolation on, on, in his palace, having sex, drinking, living wild and crazy. Really? Yeah, Buddha was a thug. Prince of, <laughs> Prince of, Buddha was a thug. Buddha was a thug. Prince Siddhartha was, was, was a G. He was a rich, very rich prince, Indian prince. And um, he was kept inside uh, the palace walls because his mother had a dream. She died when he was, basically when he was born. But his mother had a dream that a, that a white elephant put a lotus flower in her stomach and that um, her son would either be a holy man or a great king. And the father didn't want him to be a king someplace else. He said, I want you to be the king of this kingdom. Hmm. He was going to be a rival king. So his father kept him isolated for 28, 28 years in the palace and gave him anything anybody could ever want. He had no, no concept of what the world was, what suffering was, what pain was, what age was. All he knew was pleasure, pussy, drinking, and thugging. So he, <laughs> <laughs> one day he finally went outside of the palace walls and he saw somebody dying, he saw somebody sick, he saw somebody um, old, and he asked his, his, his handlers that took him out, what's that? That's aging, that happens to everybody. Mm. What's that? That's being sick, that happens to everybody. Even you, one day you'll die, one day you'll be sick. So he got such an awakening moment, he, he left his, the palace and his newborn son, which he named, um, basically ball and chain is the, is the translation wow. for him. It was gonna tie him to the world. He left and suffered for six years on purpose, living off like a grain of rice a day. He be, I mean, he was completely anorexic, would not eat, did weird stuff like stood, you know, in one position for, for days at a time to, to intentionally feel suffering. He wanted to know what suffering was. So then finally this lady offered him a meal. He ate it and he decided that sometimes you need help. So he went under the Bodhi tree and sat until he found enlightenment, which is nirvana. He found true enlightenment and came up with the, the principles of Buddhism and started teaching like this 500 years before Jesus started teaching. Mm. And he died um, the way he wanted to die of old age. He ate a meal from somebody intentionally that he knew would kill him because it was spoiled. But see, Buddha wasn't God. He never said he was God. He was a guy. It's more of a, a lifestyle that a lot of people believe, which I personally believe, is when he found enlightenment under the, under the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment, he found God. We don't know what he found. Mm-hmm. He died. He never told us. But it could have been Allah. It could have been Jesus. It could have been anybody. He just found universal, the universal God. So it's almost like Buddhism is a conduit to find true spiritual enlightenment and nirvana and, and not have to relive. But the only difference is in Buddhism, we 100% believe in reincarnation. Okay. Yeah, so you're going you're to come back until you learn all your lessons. Buddha didn't come back. Buddha kind of came back as, as the Dalai Lama. And we're on the 13th Dalai Lama right now. Um, so there's been 13. That, that, I don't want to talk too much about Buddhism. No, please. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's something, I mean, like and, you said, And a lot of people don't really know that right. I'm really a Buddhist because it's not really in a Buddhist nature to push it on people. It's not like Christianity where it's yeah. like, you have to be saved. And if you don't accept my teachings, you're going to hell. There's no hell in Buddhism. You're, you've been Buddhist since you were four? Like since you lived in Nepal, you've been there? I mean, I've been Buddhist my whole life. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's other aspects. I went to church every once in a while when I was a kid because, you know, my grandfather is a straight immigrant from Sicily. So there was, there was some Catholic stuff going on. Yeah. But I never really went to church. And of course, I didn't follow Buddhism when I started screwing up. I mean, I was basically living on my own at 16. I dropped out of school in eighth grade. 
Bro. Uh, yeah. In Oakland? Mm-hmm. We moved from Kathmandu, Nepal to Oakland. And I'm like coming from a Buddhist place with no military, no, no everybody's <laughs> peaceful, wearing robes and beads, and I show up in Oakland. Like, why you got no pearls in a dress, bro? <laughs> These are prayer beads and my traditional robes. <laughs> you were really wearing like prayer beads. No, oh. I, did, I did wear prayer beads and stuff uh-huh. like that. I mean, I was, you know, it was Your I robe. was a kid, so it's like my 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 stepfather was Tibetan. Yeah. My stepfather's debate. My father left. I never really knew that dude. I used to call him the man with the beard. I've seen him like four times. He was like a drug trafficker, right? He was a drug trafficker into Asia. Oh, is that why you were born in the Japanese? Yes. um, I was born in Japan just because my brother almost died in in Kathmandu, Nepal, because my mother tried to have a home birth. And, uh. and with um, some <laughs> Nepalese women trying to help her do it. And then she had my brother in a rickshaw, I think, on the way to the hospital. <laughs> I think that's what the case was, oh in, in a rickshaw. So, and you were born in the lobby of the hospital. Well, they put a cot out. So my mother said, okay. my mother said, you know, I'm not going to have my second son born in Nepal or not in a third world country. Hmm. So she flew illegally because you're not supposed to fly when you're that close to be giving birth. She flew intentionally and illegally to Japan to have me in Japan. What? So then she went into labor and she went to the hospital in Japan. And you're not going to stand. This is the, this is the 70s. So she goes to the hospital in Japan <laughs> and she says, I'm in labor. And they said, well, you can't have your baby here. And the Japanese are very, very strict, very, very anal, very, you know, they had a certain amount of beds that they could have. And this many women are supposed to give birth today. And you were not on the list. Hmm. So then she said, well, you know, you, you either I'm going to have it here in the hallway or, you know, you got to throw me on the street. And they gave her a cot, and she yeah, she had me in like a hallway of the hospital, and then kicked her right the fuck out. And said you gotta you gotta leave Japan. You can't be here. You'll he'll never be a citizen mm-hmm. because I, even though I was born like if you're born in America, you're a citizen. I you, I could never be a Japanese citizen. It just I was born there means nothing. Mm-hmm. You know they're kind of racist actually Japanese in their own way. So what are what are you then? Are you nap? What would you call? Because you're Mediterranean. Yes, uh, Cecilia. I don't really like, know what, what my father is 100%. So you don't even know like, what you're... You're born in America, so you're an American, but like... You no, I wasn't born in America. But I'm saying, but if, that's that's the case. Oh, I'm an American automatically because both my parents are American citizens. Gotcha. So okay. that doesn't matter. But I came to America on my mom's passport. Okay. So she took a p- picture of her holding me in the passport. Hmm. That's how I came to America. Okay. But I'm automatically a citizen. But there's been a few times in my life that, that ICE has bothered me. Like immigration has sent me letters when I was in, in school and like I had to prove I was a citizen. Whoa. Because my birth certificate doesn't exist. It's in Japan and it's a different name than my ID and passport. So, And that goes into why it's hard to find my, my criminal background because technically my real name on my birth certificate was a mistake. is Burton Nima Williams. Hmm. But my name is Nima Burton Williams. So my, my social security number is attached to Burton Nima Williams. My passport is Nima Burton Williams. My ID is Nima Burton Williams. I was convicted under Burton Nima Williams. And, I was convicted under Nima Burton Williams and sentenced under Burton Nima Williams. <laughs> what? T- it's just, it's just, it was the, it was the seventies, and everything was mixed up. And my mother kind of came in and out of the country a few times illegally. She was like, smuggling drugs. Your they, mom too was drug smuggler. Yes, but it was, it was actually the original, um, the original powdered version of MDMA. It's, it's ecstasy. Uh-huh. So they were smuggling, just putting ecstasy powder in foot um in uh, uh, foot powder cans and just take it over there and making it seem like they were selling foot powder Whoa. but you know it's very unorganized then they didn't have the x-rays <laughs> they didn't have the dogs nobody gave a shit then they didn't even know what it really was in asia so they're going really with the with the with where you get caught is entering the country not leaving america so when you enter into wherever they entered into i don't know i know they flew into nepal but they probably got to go to india first because we spent a lot of time in india but i go to india first and they were they were actually smuggling the drugs not to the asian people but to the white hippies that lived in a humongous community of white hippies in in nepal mm-hmm. because buddhism it was the 60s at that time it was my mother left in 60 
seven or something. She ran away from home because home was horrible and ended up in the San Francisco in a summer of love. And then um, she got raped by a serial killer that didn't kill her, but killed everyone else. And she found him later on death row. And so what? she was all fucked well, up in the head. What? <laughs> yeah, she I love a, you're just saying all this matter of factly. <laughs> as it's, 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 it's my whole life is like this. When I tell <laughs> people, my whole life has been like this. And it's never really phased me. Nothing has ever really phased me. I've just been kind of like numb, but not numb in a bad way. I've been numb my whole life just because I've just seen so much crazy shit. And, you know, it's like, man, sometimes I hear people's hard luck stories. And you know, be like a black dude or something, telling me Hardy had it. Um, man, man, I was so poor. You know, I had to, I had to, I, had, I couldn't, I couldn't afford a suit to go to prom in high school. I'd be like, you went to high school? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like, what I was mean? in prison. And it's so hard to explain, uh, you know, who I am because of the way I look. I don't, mm -hmm. like, I don't have tattoos. I didn't get a single tattoo in jail. That's impressive. I got this one tattoo out when I got out, but I didn't have a single tattoo in jail because I didn't trust the ink, bro. I'm bougie. Oh, they yeah, make yeah. the ink out of melted styrofoam cups. Becomes a powder. They, they they take a like a Manila envelope and put it over a burning styrofoam cup, and all the soot that's on there, they scrape it out, and it's like a powder, and they mix it with toothpaste and water, and then the tattoo gun is made out of a Walkman motor and a pen, what? a guitar string going through a ink pen, and the motor <laughs> of the Walkman's turning it. Or they just dot it in. So they give you bomb-ass tattoos, but that's styrofoam residue. Uh -huh. Gotta be cancerous. I don't, man, they're gonna do a research on all the prison tattoos. People end up getting skin cancer afterward. See, no tattoos. Even um, in there for eight years, you never got a tat. That's impressive. Almost nine. Never got a tattoo. Almost nine years? I got but a lot of broken bones. right? I was um, originally, my, my mandatory sentence for my conviction was 29 to life. At 17? Yes. <laughs> Well, I was—I actually originally had the death penalty, um, but I, I had a death penalty case, but they couldn't kill me because I was a minor. Uh -huh. They wanted to, my, my crime partner, my co-defendant, which they separated our cases so he could snitch on me, vice versa, uh -huh. um, which I never snitched on him. I kind of snitched on myself, but that was after everyone snitched on me. He beat the death penalty <laughs> to get 25 to life okay. by, by snitching on me. But he's so stupid, he put himself at the scene, and forensic evidence you know, showed who did what. And there was a witness that he didn't know about. So, I'll get into what the crime was later. Um, it was robbery. Well, it was a. It was the, yeah, the murder. <laughs> it was cons it was called a burglary. That's what they called it because it was we didn't take okay. anything. It was a, we were supposed to teach this guy a lesson, beat him up, and and the the plan was to beat him up and leave him in the hills naked and make him walk home from the Oakland Hills back to yeah, just your run of the mill. Well, he had stole foolery. yeah he had stole crack in a car from one of our friends who was a drug dealer and Benji was a drug dealer and I was just a drug user but I was all, always on the scene with the drug dealers and I was a lookout at one point and I was just out on the streets living crazy and I just I wasn't a bad guy. I was always like a, a sweet Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Buddhism is behind all of this. It's always behind it. it, it it's behind my survival my whole life. I mean, uh -huh. honestly, Buddhism has been my survival my whole life. So they, they called it a burglary so they could attach a felony murder rule to it. So when I got my charges, um, they actually told me I was going to be released the next day. Y'all bitches. So when I got my charges, um, most people's charges, like a couple pages, they slide it out of your door. They slid a fucking pamphlet of like 40 pages. And I'm looking at my charges. It's first degree murder, um, assault with a firearm, oh attempted murder, attempted murder, attempt, four counts of attempted murder, one count of first degree murder, 187. Um, and then they said plus burglary. And I was thinking, why did they add burglary with all these serious charges? So then um, they sent the public defender to me, which I couldn't, they, they actually was blocked from the public defender's office because 
um, it was a conflict of interest since they separate our cases. He's a public defender. I had to go court appointed a private attorney. So um, I asked at the time a public defender that was sent to me, like, why did they add burglary? And they said, oh, it's for, it's for special circumstances. And my young mind, I thought, oh, they're going to give me special consideration. Right. Special circumstances means death penalty. Huh. So then I said, so what does that mean? They, they said, he said, that's the death penalty. I said, what? He said, but they can't kill you. You're a minor. So you'll, they'll just LWAP you. And I said, what's L? I said, what's LWAP? <laughs> it said, that's life without the possibility of parole. Wow. So that's basically what I was facing. I pled guilty to first degree murder um, and was given a mandatory sentence of 29 to life. Um, but I was sentenced as a juvenile, which is the crazy. It could never happen now. This is pre-Clinton. This, this could only happen. And you know, you can say anything you want about George Bush Sr. I mean, he's a, I clearly don't like Republicans. But... Clinton did a lot more damage to the black community when it came to mandatory sentencing and putting people behind bars because juvenile justice was such a big deal at that time. So I was sentenced as a juvenile um, with a governor's review. So that means on my 25th birthday, they would make a decision whether to release me or not or then give me one year to life for the rest of my life. So that was kind of the thing. Or if I fucked up too bad at any point and wasn't found amenable, then I would just be transferred back to my 29 to life. So I had to do all my time with a life sentence still hanging over me with a threat oh my god and i still had to survive and fight and do crazy shit but i could not like ever riots yeah actually i got in a, <laughs> i got in a riot on the side of the muslims against the whites what <laughs> and i ended up joining the nation islam behind that what i had to what <laughs> i had to i had to the I mean, buddhist in me said i had to do the riot was, against whites it was um no, I, the thing is i was in the bay i was a, i was in a black gang i was in 415 bay area so, you know, any white person that was in my vicinity during that time I was locked up was my enemy because the COs didn't like me. They were racist. They didn't like the fact that I hung out with black people. I was against the whites. The whites hated me, of course. They wanted to kill me. Um, and at that time, the Aryan, well, they were actually called SWP, Supreme White Power, Aryans. Um, they, they were slicing people's faces. They were giving people buck fifties. So this was a pretty regular occurrence. So these white, 50. It was 150 stitches. That's what they called that. Word. So they would just send a little minion nobody out, like a little little knack. They called knacks and whatever. They'd send one of them out and they'd just sit next to like a Muslim, especially Muslims, and just slice their face and run away. And then they'd be getting, getting beat up, but the Aryan leaders didn't give a shit. So that person get beat up, put in a hole, fucked over, but they earned their stripes. So there are people walking around with slices on their face. So I had a friend named Sal from East Palo Alto, EPA. And I knew he was a Muslim, but I didn't think about that when I saw him getting attacked. I was on the yard. I was just coming off a lockdown, the shoe program, you know, solitary housing unit. So I was on a modified program. I can be around certain inmates. And he was on there, too. So it was a Bay Area thing, what it was to me. I was back arming. I used to be swole, too. I'm all skinny and shit now. Um, I was back arming some weights. Oh, so that was back when you were swolled up. Oh, I, was, hey, I was swole shit. I was big as shit. I was back arming some weights, and I looked over, and I saw uh, Sal getting rushed by these three white dudes. So... In my mind, I thought they were slicing his face. So I threw the weight off me, jumped up, grabbed one of them, hit him, grabbed this other dude, hit him. And then five more white dudes ran over and started fighting us too. And every, there was a lot more black people in the yard that day. Every black dude, crip, blood, no matter what they were, stood the fuck up and beat those white guys like I've never seen anyone get beat up in my life. And um, <clears throat> they said I started the riot. Huh. So then this dude named Brain Damage, this white white dude. He's his name, his name was White dudes always had the funniest names. It's either something crazy or they're named after an animal. Like it's fucking bear over there. You talking about scorpion? Scorpion and bear coming through. <laughs> so this dude, uh, Brain Damage, uh, started a rumor that I kicked him in the face and yelled Black Power. Hmm. That pissed the white guys off. So I was locked up for months. Um, well, about two and a half months at that point. But solitary 
solitary yeah solitary confinement fucked me up for life that's worse than doing time i just did too much time in solitary at a young age it really destroys your brain it messes you up how so i I don't know what it does but they say after 40 days you go insane the most common thing people do and it happens all the time in there if you spend too much time in solitary for some reason you start rubbing your own shit on the walls what did you do that i never i never did it how long were you in there for i've spent more than 40 days at a time in solitary in a row oh yeah yo yeah I wrote a script once when I was in solitary with a little, I had this one guard bring me in little pieces of lead because I couldn't have anything in there and I wrote it on toilet paper. I wrote a whole script. <laughs> it was actually a good script. It was funny. It was called Talk is Cheap. It was about a relationship um, expert going on a show like um, um, uh, Maury Povich or something like that or, or what's the dude who was a senator for a minute? Is that Springer? Oh, Jerry Springer. Jerry it was basically kind of based on that because that was yeah. hot at the time. Right. So um, a, a, a woman was a relationship expert, and the, the show runner um, under Jerry Springer was a was a was a ladies' man player, and they end up falling in love, and they help each other. You know, it's just the, the arc was there. It wasn't like an amazing script, but the fact that I wrote it in solitary with a pencil lead, yeah, <laughs> on I, toilet paper, and I wrote it in proper format because I had got book. <laughs> the only books I ever had smuggled into me was um, How to Write a Script, How to Write a Screenplay, and John Brown. By W.E.B. Du Bois. John Brown was my hero. John Brown was an abolitionist who murdered a bunch of slave owners to, to try to arm black people. So, the slaves. Dude, this is so much to digest. As you're talking, there are so many things I want to say and jump in on, but it's like you should literally... Just, people say I should write a book but I have too yeah. much to write I don't know where to start I mean I don't know what it's because there's so many different segments in my life you know what I mean it's like and even my attachment to black culture goes so far back it's insane you know I, I my, my touch, attachment to black uh, you know people started when I was like six and I was locked in a closet by my father. <laughs> Actually, he wouldn't lock Solid. me in a closet. He would um he would put strands of his wife's hair because she had really long. She was Chinese, and she would put strands of his wife's hair across the the open door. And if I walked out, the strands would break. He was schizophrenic, and he'd come Whoa. home and say he can always see me, and I know when you leave this closet, he beat the shit out of me and say if you leave the closet again, I'm gonna know. So I was afraid to leave an open closet. Hmm. I never I figured out finally that there were strands of hair. So he had a um a record player in there, and he had Bob Marley was in there, and I don't know, like it was it was the album that had a war until the philosophy which right, whole one race superior and another. I don't want to tell you what yeah, to do dude, so you cool. don't kill me, but like the audio. <laughs> but I'm so not a I'm <laughs> such a sweet <laughs> such a sweet guy. Um, but then I just I, I somehow at such a young age started affiliating my brain to people who who suffered. It's also a Buddhist background. Hmm. I associated with people who suffered most in the world and the people I associated the most with was Africa. Like I remember being like 13 and people were making fun of me because I was, I was always talking about Indian apartheid and I would always draw, the, I was an artist, I used to draw my whole life. I would draw these amazing pictures about Mandela and, and apartheid and, and South Africa and people would be like, what the fuck are you doing little white boy? Yeah. And I was, I was like power to the people my whole life. And then I come from Oakland, man, which is a very pro-black city. It's a very revolutionary city, the Black Panthers, everything like that. And I grew up around black people and it just was who I, I, I it's all I've ever known. It's like uh, dances with wolves or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was just in it my whole life. And, you know, I got out of jail an angry black man because I felt like white people had always fucked me over. I felt like every white male in my life has been a piece. Of, it was like a Malcolm X moment when he realized every white person he's ever known has been a piece of shit to him. Hmm. And everybody who's ever been anything to me was not necessarily black, but men of color. My uncle was my mentor. He was South Indian. He was very, very dark. My stepfather, who I loved way more than my father, who he left too, by the way, um, he was Tibetan. He was dark. 
So it was dark men. It was just white men represented evil to me at a very young age. I'm, and, I'm sorry. And the, I, I keep hearing that more and more on this podcast and, from I'm, men and women. But, I'm, but, I'm saying, but the thing, and it's so funny coming from a white guy, I don't feel that way now. Uh-huh. I, I had to get through that. You're I mean, a Buddhist. Not just that. It's just that I lived in the real world. You understand, I never went to school. Yeah, I was smart because I read a lot, but I got my GED in jail. I ended up going to college in jail too. But most of my learning was through books from perspective of, of revolutionary black people. And I was very attached to that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. When I first started reading books in jail, it was all you know revolutionary black stuff. I mean, even Mark, Marx Garvey, I was into, into that movement. I really felt like white people were evil. And it was through the Nation of Islam too. You know, When I got out, I was an angry black man. And then I realized that black people don't accept me either. Hmm. So then I was pissed off. I was like, I just did all this shit for y'all in there. I was in riots. I was a damn in the nation of Islam, and I still got disrespected by people. Fuck you, white boy. So it's been hard for me not to fight a lot more than I do because I, I am afraid to go back. So I, 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 I remain, I'm sure I remain very afraid. humble and sweet because um, I'm never afraid to fight. I'm afraid of the outcome of the fight because you know I've got a lot of time, kind of. In, in the cloud waiting over, over my head. If I ever got in trouble again, they would throw me away. For like life? I mean, put it this way. They would double my time and then t- add extensions. Let's say I punched somebody and they fell down and bust their head and mm-hmm. they, you know, they got seriously hurt. They charged me with assault. They'd probably actually give me seven to 10 years because they give me the maximum. And then they'd double it because I have a strike. So they would, it would automatically be 20 years. And then they'd probably add a couple enhancements to make it 30 years or so. And they'd probably make me do 80% of my time. So thank God for comedy. Yes. That's always, that's an outlet for all of us as comedians in one way or another. It's, it's kind of a way to, it's sometimes it can get you into trouble, but a lot of times that stage is what can keep you out of trouble. It keeps you, it keeps you peaceful, happy. You know, I started comedy in jail. Oh yeah. Yeah. I started comedy in jail. I was, um, and I was, I was not, um, the thing that's so funny about me, man, is I was never a thug, ever. I was a nerd. I was a theater nerd, actually. I always wanted to be an actor. Yeah, didn't you star in Grease? It was I started in Grease. Christmas Carol? Oh, my God, it's so crazy. What are you doing here, Sandy? <laughs> oh, my God, it's so crazy. Um, yeah, I started in Grease. I was really into theater. And my uh-huh. cousins, who are act- actors now, too, well, my, my cousin, Daya, Daya Vadia, she's been in a few things. She's an actor. She kind of pulled me in, into that world. The theater ended up shutting down. That's when I went buck wild. Well, you but were I had mopping very- floors to cover the tuition Yes, stuff. I was, yeah, so you I couldn't were committed. Afford it. I was committed. And I loved it theater but uh-huh. they shut down and that kind of screwed me over it was the julia morgan youth theater group in berkeley california um and they shut that down but i, I had very little supervision my, my mother blessed her heart sweetest woman in the world, world she really helped me retain love in my heart through mm. the darkest of times but she came from a horrible childhood and she didn't very much supervise us you know she worked two jobs and dated a guy it was rich guy fred for 11 years of my life and she spent all her free time with him so I was unsupervised. I would be out at 4 o'clock in the morning when I was 9, 10 years old, uh, uh, taking acid. I took a lot of acid at a young age. I took acid in elementary school at one point. I do remember that. <laughs> because the Grateful Dead would always come to the Bay Area, to the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center, and we'd load up on acid. We'd take it. I would, I, at 9? Yeah, I took acid really young. Yo. I was doing drugs really young. But I was just, that's all I knew. I mean, I came from a hippie background where everyone I knew was doing drugs. It was always around. My mother didn't do drugs, but everyone else did. I'm coming from this hippie perspective. I was really into like Jimi Hendrix at the time. And, you know, I just. How I, young when you started? Doing drugs? Yeah. Nine, ten. So I nine is about the time it started. And you just yeah. dove headfirst into acid. Well, no, I started, you know, um, mostly we just smoked. I, yeah, I pretty much dove right into acid. <laughs> 
smoked a little. No, it was acid. <laughs> cocaine is a hell of a drug. Oh, that um, got you there too. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. <laughs> no, I actually, I never really did a whole lot of cocaine. I did a little bit um, when I was kind of helping people sell it, but I wasn't that into into. I wasn't that into uppers. I was into hallucinogenics and downers, mm-hmm. and that's why alcohol became a problem later. But you know, I was locked up by 17, and I didn't do anything when I was inside um, until 25. And I got at 25, I was I was on TV when eight months of being out. In the so, eight months of being out of prison. After eight months of being out, I was already on Comic View. And you were on Comic View like seven times, right? Yes. How did, what, how did you get that? It's just crazy. It's, it's, my life's all been crazy. And then I just fucked everything up because I wasn't ready for it. I got way too much, way too early. So I started doing comedy. You got a lot early. Way too much. And I wasn't ready. I couldn't headline. and have. I didn't have even a 20 minutes. I just, it, it was so crazy. Yeah, you, did you bomb on Comic View a couple times just for the yeah, check? Yes. You just like, I, did. Yeah, I think I, I, think I, I have the time. But. I think I had bombed about three good times on Comic View. <laughs> And I didn't really bomb. No one ever booed me off stage. I just didn't have shit to talk about. So I would just like be loud. Mm, charismatic. I'd just be charismatic and get through the set and get paid. Right. But there was not so, anything to be proud of. But I had some really good sets on Comic View too. I had some really good sets. Yeah. But I, I, I started doing comedy in jail because I, I had just come off uh, the shoe program. And um, it was because I fought this Samoan who I wouldn't snitch on that I fought. And he broke my nose, my jaw, my cheekbone, beat the shit out of me. Yeah, yeah he beat the shit out of me. So... Um, but I wouldn't snitch. They put me in the hole because clearly I got in a fight. We were in wood shop, and I just told the 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 the, the person in charge because they have the teachers, but they're up in a cage. They're not. They're not on the floor with us. They're okay. up in a cage. His name was Ragasa. I said Ragasa. He's a Filipino dude. I said I need to go to the, the doctor. And he said, What happened to you? And I said, The board hit me. <laughs> I told him the board came back and hit me. Uh-huh. When I got to the, to the hospital, they were like, This dude has been beat up with a board. <laughs> <laughs> were you beat up with a board? No, that's just with? how hard he hit. He's a Samoan. Yeah. Beat the hell out of me. Um, but I was all, my nose is still crooked, messed up from it. From that fight? Yeah. And the, the shoe is the solitary? Solitary. So I was coming off the shoe. So now, wow. I'm, a, now I'm a modified program, which means you're on level one, which means you have no privileges. But I had been there so long, and everyone knew I didn't really do anything wrong. So the, 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 um, the head CO of, of that dorm was like, man, put him in with a phase three. And my friend Lacey Jackson, phase three means you got privileges. You got a TV in there. You got a radio. You got more food. You got Zoom Zooms and Wham Whams and snacks and sweet stuff. Zoom Zooms and Wham Whams. That's what they call like snacks. Is that like the sweets? And yeah, that's zoom, 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 zoom Zooms and Wham Whams. And we're learning knacks and all sorts of things. <laughs> zoom today. Zooms and Wham Whams. <laughs> so he had stuff in his room. But if I went on a modified program room, I'd have nothing, nothing. Just my draws, and I'd have to come out of the room in hand shackles and leg irons. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be around any other inmate. I'd be in a room by myself. They did me a huge favor by putting me in this room with Lacey Jackson, who was a rapper from San Francisco named Straight Lace. He was he was dope too. He he was a rap man. That's a sad story. He got he got he made he he got signed to a record label, and um, then got out and beat up his baby mom and went back to prison. Oh, um, but he had a record label um, sign him while he was locked up while he was my roommate. So the the the, the COs they wanted to see him perform, and the the record label had sent in the beats. So since everything has to be racially fair in jail, um, they couldn't just let him perform because then white guys would get pissed, the Mexicans get pissed. Mm. Oh, Holmes, why we gonna perform too, eh? So they um they they made it a talent show that anybody could be in. But he was the headliner of the talent show, so I wanted to watch him perform his 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 songs because he'd be he been rapping them to me in the room for forever. So I you know you got to put your flag out the window if you want to sign up for something. So you, we didn't have Kate, you know bars. We had doors, big metal doors, windows about this big. But you can slide a piece of paper out the window, huh. out, out the flap of the door. Shit, we used to pour water through those flaps. 
For what? Hot water for coffee and soup. Yeah. You can put a bag in there, you pour it, it go through the door and come out the spout. Oh, you become <laughs> very ingenious in, in jail. There's a lot of shit you can do. I can I can pop a socket to light something. Um, I've seen a dude make a chandelier out of chip bags. The Mexicans do that. They, they chip make, bags? Chip. Oh, chip potato bags. Potato chips. Okay. They weave them and he made a chandelier and he had a shiny side on the outside so it was shined. It was, <laughs> it was genius, man. These dudes do time the best. You're, um, you're like a Boy Scout, man. It's, it's incredible the, wow. the stuff you can learn. So I um I just put my flag out. I said, man, I want to watch the comedy. I want to watch the show. I want to watch my. I want to watch Lacey rap. And they said, well, 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 Williams, you on you know you on lockdown status. You on modified. The only way you coming out here is if you are in the talent show. And they were kind of calling my bluff because mm-hmm. they didn't think I could do anything. And I said, put me down. So then I got on the vent. The wire system is the vent system. You can talk to anybody on your tier. Oh, that's called the wire when yeah, you talk yeah. through the vent. So you go on a vent and you know, hear people fight all the time with a vent and fighting outside. It's like a Twitter. It's like Twitter. It's, for it's, it's Twitter. It's prison Twitter. <laughs> it's prison Twitter. So I, I got on the, on the wire on a vent and I asked people from the Bay, like, what should I do? I, I got to be in the talent show. I ain't got no talent. And everybody unanimously was like, do comedy, bruh. You funny as hell. Do comedy. Because we used to rap. I can't rap. That's one thing. I'm uh-huh. white and I cannot rap. I can't freestyle. I can't rap. I could write something, maybe rap it, but I can't rap. So we used to have rap sessions, battle sessions, and I couldn't rap, so I would snap on people. So it was my turn, because somebody would say something about me rhyming, and then it'd be my turn, and I would just say it about them. Right, right, of course. um, I would just roast them. I just thought that was natural, because I grew up in the hood, and you know, if you're a white guy growing up in the hood, you're going to have to learn to roast, or fight really good, or both. Mm -hmm. So you got to... You know, got to maneuver it. I don't even learn that doing comedy in the hood. You got to be able to do it even on that level. <laughs> you got to be able to. <laughs> yeah. You got to be able to riff and, and, and snap. So um, th- they said, you're on the talent show. I said, cool. I said, put me down. So I, I was going to do comedy. The decision was made. So the day the talent show was coming, I got my jeans out. I put them under the bed to get the crease on them. Had all my clothes ready. Wow. <laughs> That's how we crease our jeans. We, uh-huh. we ironed them by putting them under the bed and sleeping on it. Got all dressed up. My brand new trade shirt, my trade boots. I was ready to go. And they said, Williams, you ain't coming out like that. They said, take all that off. You're going to be in your drawers. So I had to come out my boxers. I came my boxers, and they had the leg irons and hand shackles in their hands. I was like, fuck. <laughs> you got to wear these, too. You can't be around other inmates. So I had leg irons, hand shackles, which is, you know, around your waist, uh, cuffs on your hands, uh-huh. and, and a chain between your feet. So I had to do the talent show in my drawers, in hand shackles and leg irons. And I won. I won the talent show. <laughs> <laughs> and then I became a comedian. And, you know, it completely changed my time in there because I was kind of a kind of a knucklehead. I was doing a lot of bad shit. I, I broke a rapist's leg in half. I remember that. God bless. <laughs> Even with this life sentence hanging over your head, you were still in there. I, I'll tell you that story if we have time because that was how I, I never, I, oh, and I always got away with everything I did because I found ways to do it smarter. Oh, and okay. how I broke the rapist's leg was, is an interesting story. So I won the talent show and I was a comedian ever since then. So we used to do school movements and trade movements. So everyone's got to sit in the day room quietly. Well, they call out which group is going to leave to go on the trade line to walk to their class. Everything's going to be on quiet. People would whisper and stuff. So I convinced the, the COs, the guards, to let me perform during that time. So I would stand up in front of the whole group, everybody, the Aryans that hated me, everybody, and I would do a set. Every morning I would do a set. And that was my stage time. And it was before we did school movement. And then I put together a talent show, and we ended up doing a talent show. Um, but people, somebody got stabbed and it ruined the whole thing. It was terrible. Oh, everybody, when that happens. everybody promised they wouldn't do anything. All the shot callers said we won't do anything. And then Sereno, Sereno stabbed Norteño. I was like, fuck. Never. Over what? They just Norteños and Sereños are always stabbing each other. Okay, that's northern and southern California. The Sereños are southern California. Norteños are northern California. If you ever watch um, that movie, Gabriel James Olmos, um, 
Uh-huh. I can't remember the name of the movie. Anyway, I'm not that woke. Serranos are the Mexican mafia. Um, uh, Nuestra La Familia. No, I'm sorry. Nuestra La Familia is the Norteños. The Mexican mafia is the Serranos. They've been around forever. The Cholos, the Zoot Suiters. The new um, Norteños were Nuestra La Familia, which is the new family, but they come from the farmers in California. Okay. Whereas the Serranos have been Chicano for generations, generations, generations. So Norteños and Serranos are always beefing. It's just Northern California fighting Southern California. That's all it is. <laughs> Um, so I made everybody laugh. I started doing these school movements. It completely changed my time. I started an organization where we went and talked to high schools and stuff like that. Cool. I was actually on an NBC town hall meeting um, for an hour. I just can't find the footage where I explain what we can do to fix juvenile justice. If I could find that, it would be intense. Um, no. So then I got out, and I didn't know anything. I didn't even understand life. I died winning when I was barely 17, and I was out at 25, and... Um, I had a guy named uh, Shaq um, give me a fake profile as a college student. So these people just sent me credit cards out of everywhere. I had a $5,000 credit card. So I just I got out and I had all this expendable money. I'm like, I didn't understand what credit was. And I just had money. and um, Invisible money. I had invisible money. And to me, it was real. It was like money on your books. That's the crazy part about it. As far as I was concerned, those credit cards is somebody put money on my books. And okay. I could spend it. So um, I went and got a job. Uh, first job I ever did was a bouncer because I was huge. I went and I worked in San Francisco at this club as a bouncer. And I worked a bounce, bouncer job a few times. Um, and then I became a personal trainer at 24-Hour Fitness by, in, by Lake Merritt. But the f- second day I was out, because um, I got out on 4th of July. That's my birthday. Um, and I got out that evening. I went and watched the fireworks in San Francisco, which was intense as hell. The very next day, I got on open mic in San Francisco. The day after that, I got on at a place called Dorsey's Locker in Oakland, and Linnell was the host. Okay. So it was the very first time I did, you know, actually real comedy. And I only got on stage. I lied to her. I said, I'm from Wisconsin. I've been on Comedy Central, and I just love a little bit of time. And she she say it in that voice? Kind of. did your white voice? I did my white voice. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she put me right up. And she announced me as, this guy's so funny. I've worked with him so many times. He's been on Comedy Central from Wisconsin, Nima Williams. So I got up and did my set, black as hell, because I really did talk so black when I first got out, like way more than I do now. Like it was kind of crazy the way I talked. And I felt very judged by people. I felt embarrassed to talk to white people. It added more to my phobia of white people. Because white people didn't understand why I talked the way I talk. I mean, I talk real black. And you know, people don't really look, people kind of look down on white guy, white people who overly do the black thing, but it was real. It was authentic, yeah. It was very authentic. Mm-hmm. And you know, old heads and real people recognize real. Like I get along with people who have actually been through some stuff. Thugs recognize the real. I live in East Point, everyone, all little thugs over there know, know me as white boy because I've had conversations with them. They can tell right away, yo, you've been through some shit, bro. And I don't even try. It's just, I'm not afraid of anybody. Mm-hmm. I just genuinely am just not afraid of anybody. There's very little you can do to me that hasn't already happened. So. Um, I got out, that did the thing with Linnell, and after, when she came back up, everyone was clapping, I did a great set, because I already had experience, I already been doing comedy about a year and a half in, inside. So I whispered in her ear, I said, this is the first time I've ever been on stage, I just got out of prison. And she, <laughs> and she said, wait a minute, white boy, come here. And she said, this is the first time this ever been on stage. And everyone was clapping, and a couple cats, Dugar, Kirk McHenry, um, these guys from Oakland approached me and they just like, man, we got, the funniest thing about this story is I was so, and I've been so paranoid for so long about like possible violence that somebody, everyone wants to fight me. So they wanted to call me into the back room upstairs at Dorsey's locker to talk to me. And what they wanted to talk about was we want to get you some stage time, man. You're really funny. Bruh, this Kirk McHenry came and tapped me on my shoulder and said, hey man, we want to talk to you in the back. Right. And I went in the back room and there was like five comics back there. But to me, they were just men. They were inmates. I walked back and said, I said, what the fuck y'all want to do? What you want to do, man? Oh, my. I said, what y'all want to do? 
And they just stone faced, like, bro, what's wrong with you? Like, <laughs> we just want to tell you about some more stage time. <laughs> and I was like, man, just forgive me. So they became kind of my mentors. Yo, you squatted up. Yeah, I, dude, it's happened a few times. So, um, and unfortunately, I kind of have a reputation of being a fighter. I don't like that because it makes it seem like I'm difficult to work with, but I'm not. So I, I kind of went under their wing as far as comedy goes, and um, I ended up being um, on the Bay Area Black Comedy Competition, which was ran by uh, Tony Spires, and he was the booker for Comic View at the time. So I came in like third place or something weird on, on the- um, The Black Comedy the black, Competition. Black Comedy Competition. And he said, I'm a bookie for Comic View. So my first set on Comic View, I had no experience in life. My first set on Comic View, I talked exclusively, exclusively about the gym, being a trainer. Mm -hmm. That's all I knew. You were still yoked at the time. I was time. still yoked. So I did that, and surprisingly, they kept calling me back. And then I started doing more stage time and getting more funny. But I had so much, so quickly, I got big-headed, and um, I was afraid to bomb now because people thought I was better and had been doing it longer than I had. I never right. got to live that New Jack experience. It's like I was, I was a veteran in a, a year in. And then Cedric had me do some tour stuff, and he put me on a DVD that I bombed on because I was not even supposed to be there. You bombed on that DVD, too? I, in my opinion. Some people say I didn't, but I 100%. And I talked to Cedric about it. Uh -huh. Cedric asked me, how you think you do? And you did. I said, I bombed. He said, I'm glad you could admit that. A year in, though. You're taking yeah. this DVD, DVD with Cedric with Cedric the Entertainer. Tony Tone, Cedric, um, JJ from The Sip. Um, a whole bunch of people, man. And I didn't know anybody. And I, I didn't have any concept of, of, of what it felt like to be on a stage with 7,000 people looking at you. Oh, my gosh. Again. And I had serious PTSD. Like, serious. And I also got, I think I got what, what, what um, um, football players get. Too many concussions. Oh, in the head, yeah. I've had too many concussions. I was in yeah. a coma for a while. Actually, in jail, I was put in a coma for like a week. After a fight? Yeah, this dude stomped me out with, with trade boots. Trade boots are yeah. trade boots are the big heavy boots we wear to protect our feet when we're doing like um, lumber work and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Trade steel classes. toe and all that. Yeah, not exactly steel toe, but very hard uh, le leather inside there. Anyway, he kicked the shit out of me. Uh, he wasn't really winning the fight at the time, but he got me down. He's a big guy, and he stomped my head in. So I woke up um, not knowing where I was. I woke up. I woke up and I saw a book on the, on the table. I didn't even know I was in jail. I didn't know who I was or where I was. I woke up and I saw a book that said H O S P period, and I said hospital. And then I kind of got up and I walked over and I looked out the, the window and I was like, oh damn, I'm still in jail. Yeah. So <laughs> they never took me to the hospital. They just let me sleep. They let me sleep in a coma with no medical treatment whatsoever. I could have had busted. They just let me sleep for a week. Oh, man. So my mother came to visiting on that Saturday, and it was probably happened like on the, the Sunday, the week before, whatever, how long that week was. My mother came to visit me on Saturday, and they wouldn't let her see me. And she's like, why not? She said, well, he's in trouble. She said, well, that's never stopped me from being able to see him before. We just can't have visiting. I want to see my son. My mother's a Sicilian lady. She don't take a lot of shit. And she's and a she, drug trafficker and all that. Yeah, so she don't she, take a lot of shit. I imagine. So she um, um, demanded to see me, and finally they admitted that I was in the hospital when she came in and saw me, and I was gone. I couldn't walk. I couldn't write. I had to learn how to do a lot of stuff again. I mean, I was really messed up for about a year and a half in the brain. I had pretty severe brain damage. They said I had 15 cerebral hematomas in my head. That means I got kicked 15 times. He was jumping on me. What did you, what did you do to him? Why um, the, the fight all started because I was in this thing called- See, what happened was- What happened was, <laughs> I was in this thing called Free Venture. Free Venture is that you have, um, you get a job, basically it's, it's prison industry. It's the, the privatization of prison. This is where this started. Um, I worked as a designer for um, embroidery patterns because I could draw so well. 
and I was the head of that guy. I had my own office. Cool. And back then, you didn't computers didn't really do anything. You had to draw the embroidery pattern six times the size of what you want to do, and you draw it completely, technically draw the whole thing, and then you take a mouse with a crosshair on it and just follow the dots. You follow the dots until that whole diagram is put into a computer chip. You put it into a computer that's an embroidery and embroids the pattern. So I was getting paid minimum wage in jail, which most people get paid 10 cents an hour. 10 cents an hour? If you're lucky. If you're, if, if that's, you're still, lucky. that's still today? Oh, I don't know today. But this it's is, still this probably the, this low. The, it's like... probably 15 cents an hour or something. So I was getting, but they didn't give it to me. They gave a portion of them my books, and the rest was going to be there for me when I got out. So I, when I first got out, I had about $4,000, I think, which was pretty cool. Over um, eight years? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, only, uh, I didn't do it for eight years. I did it off and on two years and then two years because I kept getting in trouble and kicked out. I, I lost the job because of this. Right. So the dude kept messing with me, man. He was from Oakland, too. He's my homeboy. He kept messing with me and doing Hail Hitler to me. Wow. And I didn't like that. I was very opposed to that at the time. So I said, come on, let's go. Way bigger than me, but that was my mentality in there. I fight anybody. But we fight in the blinds. It's a very small area. You're going to fight in a closet or something because you got to be away from people. So we're in the blinds. But this particular shop had a big area. Anyway, we was boxing. He got a hold of me. He was really big, threw me down. I just see a boot coming at my face. The last thing I remember, I woke up in the hospital. Um, so, yeah, but we got off topic. We were talking about comedy. So um, I just brain got- brain damage. I did, yeah, my brain damage. So I got too much too early. Right. And then it kind of all, you know, and then I moved to L.A., and I just wasn't prepared to be in that monster, you mm -hmm. know? And I got a lot of stuff that happened. I almost sold a pilot to Comedy Central. I got a, a, a script optioned by National Lampoon. You know, um, my partner, Tony Roberts, you know, we were working on a bunch of stuff and then we fell out because of some, some shady shit that happened between us. And um, I just started getting so frustrated that I just started drinking. Okay. And I just became a heavy alcoholic for a while. Mostly in New York, but I started in California. But I thought moving to New York, changing my environment, being away from California would help me. But I moved into the worst possible place you could move if you drink too much. New York. Hmm. I mean, that's an alcoholic city. And um, and you were like in Bed-Stuy, right? Like you were first, in the hood. Yeah, well, I was, right. always lived in the hood, man. I like living in the hood. I understand the hood. I, I know how to behave in the hood. I don't feel judged in the hood. It's, it's a, it's a, I've got some serious mental problems. I like being in the hood. I lived in Bed-Stuy, East New York. I now live in East Point. The only time I didn't live in the hood is when I lived in Sherman Oaks in L.A. I lived in Sherman Oaks for a while, <laughs> right down the street from Wayne Brady. Hi. You worked with Wayne, too, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Um, he was he um, was executive. He was a, he he was in as the executive producer for a TV show me and Tony Roberts put together, but then they didn't pick it up, so you know it didn't happen. But Comedy Central sat on it for like a week. The thing is, they they really wanted him to be in it, but he wasn't going to be in it. He oh, just wanted okay. to EP it. Um, and we didn't have enough star talent. Tiffany Haddish was in it, actually. Really? Yeah, it was back when Tiffany... Tiffany was a, has always been a grinder. She's been a hustler. She would do anything. She 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 found out we were shooting something. She's like, I want to be in it. And she came and she, we shot part of the, the, um, uh, the pilot presentation at, at Wayne's house in Sherman Oaks. Um, but yeah, um, Tiffany Haddish was in there. It was called ADD TV. It was a brilliant concept I came up with, I think. And it was pre-Robot Chicken, by the way. And this is pre-six-second six, six, videos on Instagram. Mm. My concept for ADD TV is everyone has ADD. They don't want to watch anything. So what we would do, we'd start a sketch, go about four seconds into it, switch to another sketch, go about four seconds into it, and always come back to the ending of the other sketch. And it would be channel changing in between, just like Robot Chicken. Wow. So I don't know if they stole it. I don't think so. I have no idea. But we did it before Robot Chicken. And we actually had it done professionally where you could see the channel changing. So it's like you were, you were channel surfing. And then you come back and you almost see the end of a sketch that started earlier. But it was a fly idea. It's just we didn't have enough star, star, star power. We had no star power. 
If only Tiffany was <laughs> back. The, how many years ago was this? Oh my god, fifteen years ago. And you, so this was still like a little over a year into comedy. I had or, only been maybe two, three years. Two, three. You might have been talking to Comedy Central, and you'd been on Comedy Central too, and like. Yeah, and I, I sucked on Comedy Central. I bombed on that too. I didn't deserve that. Really, I didn't deserve that either, man. And then when I try to get back on Comedy Central later, like we've already seen you. Like people have a really good memory. That's kind of why I left LA to go mm-hmm. hide out in New York and become a better comedian. And I had to go back into the trenches. And you know, that's why I feel like I'm very underrated, but it's not anyone's fault. It's sort of my fault. I got too much too early. So then I stepped away from Hollywood and I said, you know what? Now it's time for me to go be a comedian, to learn to be a comedian. That's wise though. So I went to the best place to learn. And that's New York. Yep. And you know, I went there and I grinded and I didn't, I didn't even think about writing or auditioning. I just comedy. I got to be a comedian. Let me hit all these spots, hood spots, every spot I could get on in in New York, and get some chops. And the funny thing is, Tony Rock had come and seen me in New York at one point, and he only seen me in L.A. before I had done the New York run. And he was like, "Dude, I can't believe." He said, I'm, "Between me and you, wasn't even funny before." And he, but you funny now, man. He said, New York did it for you. He said, where you live? I said, Bed-Stuy. He said, that's me from Bed-Stuy. <laughs> uh-huh. So, I mean, you know, people started to see that I was getting funny as hell, but I still never really pursued anything. I just wanted to be funny. Yep. Um, so then I went to New York. And then when I got sick, that's why I moved to Atlanta. But I always miss New York. I wish I was still there. You know, but I like Atlanta. I just still wish I was in New York. I could see you getting angry if you're like bombing and like your temper flaring up. Well, that's like, the thing. I'm, 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 so, I'm so aware of my, my, my temper and that I snap that if I'm bombing, and anyone will attest to this, I just walk off stage. Oh, uh, because you know. I don't, I don't engage with the audience. I don't let people talk shit to me. And I did it. <sighs> this almost happened. I, I was doing a show at, at, um, at Georgetown University, and um, this dude was, was a football player. He was from Atlanta. He kept saying Zone 6. I didn't know what that meant then, but he was from Zone 6. So um, he kept being loud and rude. And Tyler, um, Tyler um, um, not Tyler Chronicles, um, Tyler. <sighs> Craig? Tyler Craig. My brain's going dead. Tyler, I love you, man. Tyler Craig. Um, He was there. He was there. And um, (laughs) this dude wouldn't stop talking. I kept saying, hey, man, can you please be quiet? And then he wouldn't stop talking. His his girl kept yelling, too. And finally, I said, man, shut the fuck up, bitch. And so he jumps up. He says, what you say to me? Mm." When I say, "Mm," I'm saying the N-word. Right, right, right. Um, I can't give you the pass. He, he said, uh, right. I'm sure you've got said, it before. Zone right? six, zone six. I'm from zone six. This is at Georgetown University. Right, right. Snapped. I didn't always do comedy, motherfucker. I'll tell you what. Meet me outside. I ain't even finished the motherfucking show. And I actually went outside and waited for him, but he didn't fight me. But I wonder why. Tyler, Tyler Craig was like, bro. You can't fight everybody. <laughs> but that was the only time I snapped. But I learned a lesson there because I was really willing to. And I can't fight a college student at Georgetown. Do you know You're what I mean? An employee of the school. I'm an employee of the school. So from that point forward, if I ever get into any altercation or confrontation with an audience member, I bow down and leave. Mm-hmm. Or I'll snap and keep it light. Or I pretend like I can't fight. That's, my, that's been my biggest trick for, for avoiding confrontation. I pretend like I'm scared and I don't want to fight and I don't wow. want any problems. But they don't know the whole time I'm even doing this. I'm ready to beat the shit out of them. Hey, man, I don't want any problems, man. I don't want any problems. Yeah. I'm ready. Yeah. Uh, you know I, I mean? I, that's why I leaned back. I knew something was bad. I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to be an example. So it's been a fucking roller coaster, man. And, you know, the only thing that, that I think stopped um, the constant anxiety, insomnia, PTSD, just, I mean, it's been painful for probably 18 years. Nobody would know it because I don't really have. I'm, I'm not very social. I don't really have friends. You know, I don't hang out on a regular with anybody. It hasn't been like that since Tony Roberts, my best friend at the time. I don't let no one get close to me because I'm too weird. I got too many, I don't know, man. It's just, it's, it's sad. My son changed everything. 
And that was very recently. A year and a half. He's a year and a half. Changed my entire life. All the anger, all the wishing I'd have done things differently, all the regrets, all the damn, why did I have to do that shit that night? Why me? Why did I have to do so much time? Why didn't why didn't anybody give me, you know, support when I was a child? Why wasn't I supervised? Why, you know, all the why was my father such a psychopath? Why was he so abusive? All that disappeared because now I have a chance to fix it. Because mm-hmm. I know everything that's happened and I know how to not let it happen to this child. And mm-hmm. I love my son more than anything in the world. So that changed my life. And now I'm seeing gains in the comedy business because I'm actually, I, my, 90% of the time I wouldn't even come out. And people just thought I was on the road. I was at home. You wouldn't even perform. But people would think I'm, I, okay, wherever I live, I'm very rarely on the comedy scene. Like you can attest to this. You don't yeah, see me I out rarely see you out in Atlanta. Everyone thinks I'm always working. I'm probably home. Because I don't like to be out. Extreme, I started to get extreme agoraphobia. You know, What's that? Agoraphobia. Yeah. It's when you're afraid to leave your house. Interesting. Um, and it's anxiety attacks and all kinds of crazy things. And I, I mean, I, there were things that went on in my head that I'd start to think that people were looking at me a certain way because they wanted to fight me. I'm talking about friends. I'm talking about comedians who are friends. Yo. And I would start getting weirded out and I would start to go in this weird cycle in my head. And I'd, I'd think about, well, what if I have to kill him? And, you know, I mean, not that, not literally, not literally, not literally. Okay. I'm saying if they attacked me in a sense, like, how would I deal with the situation? Right. And it was all just psychosis, man. It was insanity. It was just insanity. So I just kept pulling myself further and further away from people. Still drinking? No. You're so Sober. I'm sober. Cool. Um, my life is my son in comedy now. I mean, basically, my, my, my life is my girl goes to work early in the morning. I watch my son all day. By the time she comes home, I get ready and go to the club. So what is By it? the way, I'll be at the Atlanta Comedy Theater tonight. Hey, hey. Check him out. You Tony got a Tone. website and all that jazz. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, it's a Wix account. So if you just go to my Instagram. It's a Wix account. If you go to my Instagram, <laughs> at Nemo Williams, there's it's a link a on Wix there. Account. Hey, man, I ain't got no real website. People expect whiter experiences from me. It's never going to happen. <laughs> but what's how has it changed Like your almost your goals in comedy? Because early on, not only were you Comedy Central, you did the P. Diddy Bad Boys of Comedy, did, the Martin yeah. Lawrence yep. First Amendment. Stand-up. Martin Lawrence, I murdered. I did good on that one. You you did all these TV tapings, mm-hmm. and the DVD tapings was said. So you had all that success early on. What are your goals now, and how have they shifted? Well, you know, I mean, now my, my goals have shifted completely because I never really wanted fame. I was afraid my story would come out, and people would judge me for, for the crime, for the time for who I was, they they would find out what a you know what my history was. I never went to school, you know all yeah. these. Cra- I was afraid. I, I was I was very afraid. And you know now I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for my son. So it mm. takes away all that. See now I want my son to have a house. I want to be able to go to private school. I want to be able to have a nice car when he's 16. Mm-hmm. All this is for my son now, and it relieves me of the guilt. I'm not doing it for me because the guilt comes from me believing I don't deserve it. Fine, I don't deserve it, but he does. And the only way he gonna get it is through me, because you know that, that's what it is. So now my goal is, um, you know, I never wanted to be a comedian as much as I wanted to be an actor. I'm actually a really good actor, but I was too afraid and lazy to even audition. But almost anything I've ever auditioned for, I've, I've kind of got. But I've done very little because I don't audition. I'm afraid of it. I was afraid of rejection. I just so much weird PTSD stuff that I never recognized. I never saw it until my son was born. And then I said, Oh wow, I've been fucked my whole life. Time to change. So you had the clarity. Very, very, very clear when he was born. And not right away, you know. You, you, have to, you don't love your child the second he's born, you know. Mm. You, you have to mm. fall in love with your child. Oh, okay. You don't have any children, do you? No. Nah. No, when you're, the, people have this thing, like the second he's born, you're just like, oh my. I didn't even know it was mine when he was born at first. I had to get a blood test and stuff. So. Oh, my God. So, uh, but not in a bad way. It's just, you know, there was some stuff going on between sure. me and the girl. And, yeah, and I want to make sure. Yeah. And... um. He had jaundice when he came out. So he was a little bit darker than I thought he would be. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. He should be a little lighter. She's light skinned. 
Okay. So, uh, you know, he looked a little. Yeah, you've always only dated black chicks, right? Yes, I've never dated a white girl. Yeah. No. no. And it's, I feel kind of judged by white people. And probably it's just in my head. It sounds like there's some paranoia and just, yeah, you're creating it in yourself. I, I'm sure I was. Yeah. Not, I mean, I don't feel that way anymore about anything. You know, it changed everything because it forced me to look at myself and say, what kind of father do you want to be? And when you have to look at yourself so deeply for the benefit of your child, and that's when you really start to fall in love with your child. It's, 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 you get, I mean, it took a couple of months, but I can't get enough of them now. So what do you want to do? Like comedy wise um, to be, you know, you know, right now my them. comedy goals are very right in front of me. You know, I just won this um, road to NYC Keenan thing. So um, yeah. I came in to the last round of the, um, of the standard for diversity. On and this is the first ABC, time I start. Yeah. yeah this is the first time I, I've, these are the first times I've ever even cared enough to stand in line to audition. To, oh, so, I mean, okay. my comedy chops at this point are 18 years strong and nobody even knows who I am. Mm -hmm. So the overnight success will probably seem like it is, but it's probably gonna be 20 years in at that point. But now I'm, I'm, I'm doing the, um, the, the, the festival circuits and I, you know, within the next couple of years, I'm going to win one of these things. Cause I'm that funny. Yeah. Um, I'm getting back into writing cause I was a great writer at one time. I mean, I've sold stuff. I just kind of stopped doing it and acting, you know, I got a, I got an agent now and I'm doing a video auditions at home during the day. So, um, which is cool. I don't have to go anywhere. I just do video auditions. Mm -hmm. You just film your audition, submit it. They request it. Boom. Um, but I've only done like three, four auditions so far because I just got the guy. And I got kind of a better camera setup too. But um, you know, you looking at that to steal it. Yeah, like, man, I like I that. The, the, the that Lumix camera. doesn't look too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it looks free in your eyes right now. I'm sure. You're like, <laughs> I could rob Joel. He can't. I'm, he can't I'm, defend himself. I'm, I'm so not a criminal, man. <laughs> I really am a nice guy, man. Like, I, I'm just, a Buddhist. I, I just, I truly, I just fight some. I, you know, the thing is, even the fights I've gotten into, it's never been me who started them. Somebody has to hit me first. Oh, always, yeah. You got to hit me first. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna attack anybody. Well, I'm not gonna hit you. <laughs> Joe's a pretty big dude. You might have some hands. Nah, nah. <laughs> I want to learn though. I'll yeah, learn. I could teach you to box. Yeah, my son. That's gonna teach my son to box very, very young because uh, I want him to be able to defend defend himself. You know how to box. I mean, I, okay. I took boxing for a while. A lot. I took taking martial arts. Um, um, you know, I learned how to fight in jail. Um, and you know, we have to fight in close places. There's actually a, a style of martial arts that's been created from prison fighting, um, which is like 52 blocks or something like that. Um, it's a lot of like elbows. And you know, when you're in a close space, you okay, gotta, you got to do a lot of elbows. I'm, I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm I don't want you. the PTSD to kick in. <laughs> no, and I'm like, ah! I'm not an animal. I'm not an animal. <laughs> I'm a man. <laughs> um, but you fight in close quarters. So, you know, it's um, pretty much the fights I've been in is someone had to hit me first and I'm already close enough to him. So the, the, the elbow will kick in or the punch will kick in that mm -hmm. I'm already just used to doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you fuck them up, fuck them up. Um, well, but I hate, fight. I hate fighting. I hate it. I hate seeing it. I don't I detest violence. I've seen too much of it. I've seen a dude get hit in the head with a hammer. Oh, my God. Bruh. Bruh. It was probably like hitting a watermelon. It's like explodes. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty crazy. But this is a great time to talk about you breaking the rapist leg. You oh said, yeah, we time we might as well land the plane. Okay, on that. this is this we're about out of time. This is a crazy story too. Um, there was a period in there. Where I have this theory that if you do anything past five years, I mean, you either got to do life or do five years. <laughs> okay. Anything past five, you kind of become a, a worse criminal. Comedy saved me, and you know, being a Buddhist kind of saved me too. But you get to a point where you start to get really angry. And I was in a place that was generally 23-1 lockdown for the most part. Gosh. Not a lot not a lot of free time. Um, you just kind of start to snap, start to get really angry. I didn't know who to take it out on because I, I couldn't just be fighting, you know, because I couldn't really get in trouble. I'd have to get it. It started in jail. You had to hit me first. I made a dude hit me once. I spelled out bitch on the table and pointed at him. 
and then waited for him to, to walk out on line and he rushed me. I already knew he was going to do it. So I, I just flinch every time. Start, I'm sorry, man. So then I fought him. Like, you had to hit me first. That was just it. I, I, I'm too afraid of the consequences, but I know I can handle the fight. So um, there was this tall Mexican dude. He's real tall, big guy, man. And I overheard him. Um, and he was a border brother. He wasn't a Serenio or a Norteño, which means he's straight from Mexico um, coming to America. He's a border brother. Um, which they weren't my enemies. I had no problem with them specifically. I overheard him having a conversation with somebody, and I knew he was a serial rapist. He was one of those mm. dudes that grab women on the street, throw them in the bushes, and rape them. Yeah. He wasn't in for statutory rape. He wasn't in for any type of hazy. He was a serial rapist. That's he raped women. So I overheard him saying that he was gonna soon as he was getting out in like four days. He said as soon as I get out of homes, I'm raping some bitches. So he said he was just he couldn't wait to go rape bitches. I got so mad that he was getting out, and I really felt like I deserved to get out. By the way, I didn't shoot anybody. I didn't kill anybody. I should have said that early on. I was gonna say on the record. On the record, I didn't. It's called California felony murder rule. If you if you are involved in a felony that results in a murder, you're guilty. There's a recent case where this this guy, his friend got shot by the police, and he got charged with his friend's murder. Because they committed a felony and he, the, the guy got killed. What? Like if you and me sit outside of a, 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 a liquor store and I tell you I'm about to go rob the store and you don't report me on the spot and you sit in that car and wait for me to come back and I come back because I just killed that dude. You're guilty of first degree murder sitting in that car. So that's basically what it was. It was California felony murder rule. That's what I got caught up under. I didn't do shit. I mean I did because I should have never been in that situation but I didn't shoot anybody. My, my co-defendant did. Anyway, I overheard this dude talking about um, he was he was going to rape bitches, and I got so mad. And I had been moved over to a drug hall too early. You're supposed to be in this drug hall right before you get out. They were too full um, on the dorm I was on, so they needed to loosen up some some some. They, they need to free up some space there. Mm -hmm. So they started putting people in the drug dorm. I had to, I had to complete a drug program before I was released. I couldn't have any coffee. I had to go through drug tr treatment training. You know all that kind of stuff because this was in my file that I was fucked up when I committed the crime. I was on coke and and we, uh, alcohol and shit. So um, At seventeen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I was on this dorm where I had more freedom. Because everyone on that dorm is supposed to be released soon. Mm -hmm. So I had too much freedom. Um, I shouldn't have been given so much freedom at that time in my anger stage. So um, I decided I was going to fuck this dude up. I didn't know how, but I said, I'm going to fuck this dude up. I know I am. I just don't know how to do it. So I decided I was going to get him on a soccer field. Because every Sunday, <laughs> the Mexicans played soccer. Every Saturday, um, the brothers played basketball and, and football. So they would go to the field for football, and they would get to use this humongous field official NFL size field. They actually recruited people for college football from, from that place. Wow. Yeah, and they recruited a couple of boxers too. I know somebody who's, to this day is a pretty good boxer who came out of that program. So they had re played serious football. So on Saturday people played football. I sucked, but I still played. So I signed up with the flag again, put the flag out the door. I signed up for soccer. I didn't know what I was going to do to this dude, but I knew I was going to be on a field with him. And there was, was going to be no one around me and I could get him. I was thinking about maybe elbowing him. I didn't know what I was going to do. So he has the soccer ball and he's running towards me. And I just see him. I just, I don't know what, I just, I don't know what made me do this, but I just ran at him and kicked him as hard as I could. So our legs connected shin to shin. Uh. Connected shin to shin. It hurt me. I was very bruised. Mm -hmm. But I look back at him. He's laying on the ground holding his knee and half of his leg is dangling. Oh. I broke his leg in half. So he, um, he couldn't be released injured, so he had to do more time. They couldn't release him until he was healed, and he was going to have a limp for the rest of his life. And I saw him with the limp, serious limp. And I was proud of it because maybe he'll be less likely to rape women. That's forever. He's, for, got, that he's forever. got that limp. For, if you're still out there, bro, limp for life. It's courtesy of snow. Courtesy of snow. Yeah, he had a limp for life. <laughs>
Yeah, but that's that anger, man. That anger gets in yeah. you, and you just don't know where to release it. And it's like what's really sad is they release people with with on parole, can't get a job, nothing specific to go back to, and they're angry like that. Mm-hmm. They just release people back into the world with no real treatment and training, and just their minds are screwed. It's just like this horrible cycle. The prison, American prison, is just oh God, the whole system's screwed, man. Well, maybe you could do a TED talk about it. Maybe, I'd have like you to. thought about because your comedy? And then watching your comedy, like, you're funny and you have a cool perspective, but none of this is in your comedy, dude. It just started to. None of it. I know. It's, I'm, I'm too embarrassed. I don't want people to know that side of me. But that's why I'm, I think talking I on know. 85 South was the first step. That was the first time when I heard you Anybody there, heard about that stuff. I was like, wait, what? What yeah, is? That's what? the first time. Who, how, what? 85 South was the first time people really ever heard about that. I don't know why that came out. It's because I had talked to Carlos before it before about it when we were in london together yeah and he was bugged out and he was just like wow i would have never guessed that dude and he was like that's a crazy story man you should talk about it you should talk about it on stage i said i'm not ready so he asked me to come to 85 south and then it came up about the drinking because i really messed up in london i got too drunk i wandered off ended up in the streets of london for three days you got mugged right? i got mugged <laughs> i got um beat up and mugged but i was i was unconscious when it happened um, these guys started, they took my money too. It was about $400. No, it was more than that. It was about $900. Um, and I was just so drunk, passed out, out of it in the park. And um, I just remember kind of waking up and going, passport. Mm. And I just rushed the dude. I just started fucking punching him. And I just got my passport. That's all I cared about. And they ran off. This was multiple dudes, right? Yeah, it was yeah. like three, three or four. I can't remember. But um, I got my passport. That's all I cared about. My passport and my phone. I kept those items. So then I just, um, I just, I kept trying to get a flight back, and finally I did. And I was pretty much wandering the streets for three days. But now you're starting to try to incorporate these experiences. I'm trying to, yes, 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 because I'm, I'm tired of this squeaky clean image. It's complete bullshit. Anyway, Carlos um, started talking about that. Mm-hmm. So then we start, I, start, I said, I don't drink no more. And, uh, you know, we talked about it. I quit. That's the last time I really drank was that London fiasco. Um, and then we started talking about jail, and somehow Carlos just pulled it out of me. And I just started talking about it. And then it, once it came out, and everybody was so interested in it. And it, one of the, the highest rating 85 Souths they had thus far. I said, well, people are really interested in this. And nobody's yeah. really judging me. And nobody's really judging me. So that was the start. And ever since then, I've started to write material about it. I do have a set that I'm doing for it. Recently, Jeff Singer at the Montreal um, competition we did here at Atlanta Comedy yeah. Theater. I had left. He called me back and said, hey, man, I've been seeing you for so long. I saw you in New York. I saw you in LA. I saw you in Atlanta. Why do you think you're not breaking through to get on the Montreal show? And I told him, I said, man, because I'm not really doing my true material. It's, it's, not, it's all lies. You know, I get on stage and talk about it, I'm afraid of people. I don't want to, f- I mean, it's just, it's not me. It's just, it's the carbon copy of what you think white people are supposed to say amongst urban black people. Or like and, white people get drunk like this, black yeah, people get drunk, get drunk like right. this. And it's not really, it's, it's, dude, it's not. 18 years in, it's and, time. And I don't even get drunk with white friends. So why, why this story is not in just any way authentic, just laugh. for the sake of, because it's clever. It is a clever joke. Yeah, totally. I write, I write clever, but it's totally. not from my perspective. Exactly. So then I started telling Jeff about my real experience, being locked up, being um, out on my own since I was 16, um, you know, never going to high school, uh, the jail stuff, what I was in for. And he was just jaw dropped. He said, if you can get me a 10 minute set of that, I'll put you on Montreal. And I said, I tried. So we emailed each other a couple times. And I emailed him last time. And I said, hey, man, as much as I want to, I'm not ready for Montreal with this material. I need at least a year. So I'll see you next year. Mm. So that's one of my comedy goals is this year I've got to work on all that real life material. And not, see, what annoys me is it's not as simple as being a white guy from the hood. That's such a small part of it. 
because I really wasn't a thug. I really didn't sell drugs. I did live in the hood, but I was like any other normal guy in the hood. I just happened to live there. It was the jail that that, that formed me. It was going to jail at such a young age that formed mm, me. Yeah. That's what really made. It's not for me. For me, I wasn't raised in the hood. I was raised in prison. Yeah. So I can't really say that. So everybody wants to see the tap dancing. You know, I was raised in the hood. I know all about black girls. You know what I'm saying? Whoop de whoop It's not me. And it's 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 being compared to Gary Owen, which I have nothing against Gary. I think he's funny as hell because he's coming from a true perspective. Yep. But I don't like to be compared to him because we are nothing alike. Nothing alike. You know what I mean? I'm coming from the belly of the beast. I'm coming from real hood shit. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm going to spend this year... <clears throat> You know, articulating and getting that material out that's still funny, informative, and is is true. And then hopefully I'll get a Montreal next year. If not, maybe the next the year after. I think that I can probably with this material go further in uh, standing for diversity. Um, mm -hmm. I think with this material I can go further with even this thing going on with with um, um, Keenan Thompson. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that I've got so much comedy chops now that if I can now incorporate truth and feel comfortable behind it and have a true voice, it's a piece of cake. I just had to suffer for 18 years. And I've had great times. Don't get me wrong. I've yeah. done amazing things. I've been around the world so many. I've been to Afghanistan four times, Iraq twice. I've been to Saudi Arabia many times, Dubai. That was what I spent a lot of my career doing because I wanted to travel. Once I felt like I didn't deserve the stuff I had after the Cedric stuff, I linked up with the military. And I just did mad military shows. Mm -hmm. I just constantly in Okinawa, constantly in Japan, constantly in, in Germany. Just every year I was every year I was in Japan, Germany, you know, Amsterdam um, for other stuff in Amsterdam, not military, but a lot of traveling, just mad traveling. And that you know, I didn't really get to focus on my American career because all I was really doing was entertaining the troops. But all that was to make me a better comedian. Stage time, stage all, time, stage constant time. Stage time. And for 18 years, you've been doing comedy, but I think now it's time to do your calling. Exactly. I've been doing my job for 18 years. Yes. Because I couldn't get a job anywhere else. Because even showing you did that, those speeches in prison where you said you talked to the youth. Yeah. It, clearly, there's that side of you as well. So, I mean, 18 years in, man, let's do it. Yeah, and that's, that's what I'm ready for. And I've been a lot of, I had a lot of uh, um, comedians who have given me, given me a spiritual guidance, like Zoo Man, for instance. Yeah. I, so, the few people I've really talked to about it, they really, like, you know, let me know that, you know, it's okay to talk about this, but nobody's judging you. And, um, you know, people like Carlos, Zoo Man, you know, a lot of these people have really helped me understand that, man, it's time to really talk about this. Because most people don't really know me. Most, yeah, most people totally just have not. no idea who I am on a comedy scene. Yep. You know, they just have no idea who I am. I'm just Nima. I just show up. I'm funny. And I leave. So now's the time, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to learn today. You're going to learn today. Well, before we get out of here, I mean, you've pretty much said, said it all. But is there anything else you want the world to know? Um, you know. Don't give up on people because even though people might, might seem, you know, rough and, and, and scary sometimes, people still have good hearts. I know I do. And, um, you know, keep watching, keep laughing, give it up for Joe Bears and, and follow me on social media at Nima Williams. Another thing that's really changed my, 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 my life is I became more of an activist for mm -hmm. un, un, injustices in the world. I'm going to continue mm -hmm. that. And um, that's another calling I have is, is, is to be a, be an activist. And, you know, it takes me outside of my, my own self and my own um, past because you get haunted by your past. Man, those demons run deep. Those demons run real deep. Yeah. So focusing on my son, focusing on comedy, focusing on so social injustice is what I think are the, are the elements and ingredients for, for um, sanity and peace. For Nima the Son Williams. Nima the Son Williams. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being on Hot Breath. Thank you. Oh, I almost fumbled the snap. <laughs> Wait, hold on. We, <laughs> <laughs> we out, you. Peace, y'all.
bro, I warned you, that got real, real quick. In all honesty, I have been knowing Nima for numerous years, many, many years, ever since back when I started. And to hear these stories and hear this perspective of him, it's it's truly inspiring. And what I really hope you got out of this episode is what I got out of it, is this is a comedian who's been doing comedy almost 20 years and he still struggles and battles with being his true authentic self on stage. So whether you've been doing comedy a year, you've been doing it 20 years, you haven't never even done comedy, you're just a super big fan of comedy, that adds a whole new appreciation to the craft and really just the work that goes into it. A lot of thought and effort and self-exploration goes into becoming a truly authentic comedian. This is a guy who's had numerous success touring around the world, appearing on countless television shows, and yet he is still having some of the same struggles that you may be having your first month into comedy. So it really is a common thread I have found in doing over 125 of these Hot Breath episodes is we're all still in on this together. So I hope it'll inspire younger comedians and I hope it'll enlighten comedy fans listening to this that it really is, <laughs> there's a lot more that goes on behind the jokes you're seeing people perform. So when next time you go to a comedy show, hopefully that'll bring some new uh, perspective for you. And if you do want to come to a comedy show, I've got the perfect one for you. Every Wednesday at Java Monkey Indicator, I'm hosting my show. I've been there almost seven years now. That's crazy. I've been hosting this show. 8 p.m. start time. I'd love to see you there. It was voted Creative Loafing's best Atlanta comedy show last year. Or is that two years ago now? 2016. Come on, Joel. Grow up. Stop living in the past. All right. I'll stop. But I will say, thank you for your time and thank you for listening. It really does mean a lot. We are really catching new strides here in the Hot Breath of Earth. So thank you to those early adopters out there who have been down since episode one. And thank you also to the new peeps hopping aboard here on Hot Breath Episode 128. Mm -hmm. I believe that's the number, but I'm not going to look to confirm. It's a lot, okay? So you have over 120 other Hot Breath episodes you can go back to and watch and listen to and whatnot. Because we're on YouTube now, we're on Instagram, at Hot Breath Pod, at Joel Byers Comedy. Everything's at Joel Byers Comedy. You can contact me there or joelbyerscomedy.com. We can get a direct link. But that's it. That's exciting. That was a good outro. I'm going to say the best outro yet. I'm not trying to brag or anything, but... I think we're really catching stride here, really finding the voice and tone of hot breath. So you guys know it's a process, just like everything else you do. So I appreciate you being along for this process here. So let's go ahead and get out of here. That rhymed. Or was that the same word? I don't know what's happening anymore. Okay. My dog Guinness is looking at me like, all right, bruh, wrap it up. He's flashing the light, playing the Grammy music. So we'll get out of here. You are so awesome for tuning in. Good luck out there this week. If you're hitting the stages, hit them hard. I hope this episode makes you be a little bit more mindful and more strategic about how you're going to perform this week. 
And if you're going to watch a show, if you're just a comedy fan, listen to other podcasts, and you're like, oh man, I really like Hot Breath better. <laughs> you could leave an iTunes review, let us know. But that's neither here nor there. So, thank you to my engineer, Amon Garner, of course. And to thank you to my wife, Erin Byers, for making the theme song, and me. As we drone out here, we're fading out at the end of this outro. So here we go. Say it with me now. Until next Monday, right here on Hot Breath.